Okay, it's Lent 4, uh, so we go to the rose color, as you know, uh, Gaudate and Letere, so Advent 3 and Lent 4. Um, they're both penitential seasons in a sense, although Advent has gotten a more hopeful character over the last hundred years because people couldn't bear you know, two penitential seasons, but now it's kind of sw- coming back um, to be a purple season rather than a blue season. But, you know, people who are spiritual guides, I mean, people who have been through the church for a thousand years know that it can get a bit heavy. Um, I don't know if I'll talk about this in the sermon next week or not, but one of the interesting things is things always kind of come apart in the middle of Lent. It just is the way it is. People come, you know, they come all, all happy about it and, it, and then the realities of it, the extra service, you know, whatever discipline you're following, the attempt to say more prayers, to pay attention to the Eucharist, you always have this middle thing, and it, it's just normal. It is a normal thing that happens, um, you know, and then it kind of comes back to us. So you always have these little little rougher spots. The microphones don't work. People get sick. The speaker falls off the wall. It's 90 degrees, and we thought it would be 30 degrees. You know, all that stuff. It's just That's just normal Lent. So you just kind of just keep going. You know, you just keep going. Life's going to be fine. So we're um, four weeks in. You get the, anyway, the, the, the point of that is, because people know that then, the third week, the third week of four in Advent, and the fourth week of six in Lent, things sort of loosen up a little bit. You brighten the color. Pink is back on the way to white. You know, kind of purple. You're partway there. Purple to pink to white. Things are lightening. The days are getting longer. Jesus is on the way. You're almost there. Then you have a couple of difficult weeks. Uh, week five and week six of Lent. So week five next week and then Holy Week, those are very difficult weeks, and then it kind of gives way to the joy of Easter. So basically, this is the weekend where you sort of gather yourself again and make the big push for the final couple of weeks. That's what's happening, and that's why the colors change and, you know, things are... But it's normal to expect, and I'd said this to women's Bible study, we want to be the kind of congregation where... Things are always going to go wrong in a congregation. Things are always going to get bumpy. You know, not everybody's going to agree on everything. But we, we need to be the sort of people who understand that. And while we don't accept it, you know, we don't accept our bad behavior, we understand it. And we still embrace people because everybody has bad days. You have them, I have them. And then we sort of keep pushing toward the same th- goal. So sometimes in Christianity, you think because you're indulgent, uh, people under- think you're, you're, they take your... When you understand that they've had a bad day, they take that as indulgence, as, as okay in the bad day. Now, we don't okay the bad day. We say we understand that bad days happen, and we sort of bump and nudge till things get back on track. This is the Sunday to bump and nudge things back on track. Typically, it happens in Lent. Things go bad kind of in the middle, and then we sort of bump and nudge things back. Okay, take a breath. Remember where you are. We're on the way to Easter. Life's going to be fine. And then off we go again. It's a model for how you want to run your church. Lent is a model in fact, you could. I once pitched the seminary that I would write the entire curriculum from the from the readings for, for Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Saturday into 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 Easter. Everything you need to know happens in those three days. So, um, the great triduum of the church. So anyway, uh, that's where we are. It's good. Life's good. You're good. Uh, even if you're struggling a little bit, keep going. Kind of keep the discipline. So Christ says, "For their sake, I consecrate myself." that they also may be consecrated in truth. Consecrate does have the sense of hallow, but it also means to be set aside for something. So you consecrate an altar, you consecrate a building, you set it aside. So now it's just not, you know, you consecrate a bell, you consecrate, it's not just a normal bell anymore, it's a bell that's going to be used in the service of. 
right, in the service of Christ. Christ says, I consecrate myself, I set myself apart, that they too might be consecrated, set apart in truth. That's what you're doing. You're trying to walk in the way of truth, John 17, 19. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who in your Son has given us a pioneer of salvation and made him a true and eternal priest and a mediator of his people, grant, we beg you, that we hold fast to him in love, learn obedience in his discipleship, and so be brought into the heavenly sanctuary through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Okay, a couple of things. Um, I got a couple more books back there. Did they go away? Anybody need? I got one up here just so I could remember. You need one more? There's one there and there's one here. So if you want them, take them, give $10 to John Crow or not because John's a very understanding man. Uh, here is, um, mark down your name and 10 of your closest friends and then keep passing that around. Okay, good. That's great. Um, also, we're going to give money uh, to Westfield House. The mummies are around. Jonathan and Rachel, who was Rachel Cannell, you know, one of their jobs is to raise money for Westfield House. So they're on a swing somewhere in this area. I know that they're, Jonathan preaches this morning at Bethany Naperville. I know they're going up to Pastor Allen's church to, um, to stay and to preach. And then he'll be here for Palm Sunday. So we'll probably take a couple of collections for him. But anyway, send that around. Put a million dollars in there. We'll give it to the mummies. Okay? Um, you're a very useful woman. Your husband should be more appreciative. It should be. <laughs> You're right. What else can you say, right? You just roll over when it's it. Just, you know what? So anyway, um, I put a bunch of things roundabout, and then I forgot to, I gave you one extra sheet which, with which I'd gathered up questions that people had sort of been sending me. So I just sort of kept the questions. Um, I forgot to bring one for myself, but when it comes time, we'll run through them. But it's interesting, the questions that came and the sophistication of them. Um, we did just a cleanup thing. We asked about the, the crown of thorns last week. Anna, you know, looked around a little bit and then made the reminder that uh, you think of it as um, it's not a photograph. It's not a representation. It's not an oil painting. It's not meant to be a strict depiction of reality. It's meant to invite you in and through the icon to learn something about Christ. So you may not get every last literal detail, but what you get there is meant to push you on to a greater understanding the way that reading the scriptures pushes you on to a greater understanding of the text. That's what's going on there. So, um, but the icon can never come free of the text. Thank you very much. It's just, Mr. Mar- thank you, Jesus. Uh, the things that just, just sort of show up. So, um, I have a point four for you. You know, the crucifixion seems to be this great injustice. And as you remember, the Emmaus Road folk, um, they thought it was all over. When they saw this, or John, if you can scooch to the one that has our icon, we'll kind of use that one. That would be nice, the full blast one. Perfect. Um, that was their last image of Jesus. You know, this is prettied up just a little bit, but their last image of Jesus was that he'd hung on the cross, he died, he'd been taken away and put in a tomb, and really that's the end of that. So their notion was, and many of you often have this notion, as I do sometimes, evil won the day. Injustice won, you know. Um, it's nice for you to come to church, and it's great to be hopeful, and we'd like to be optimistic, but the reality is that the world is an evil place, and evil wins the day. And you remember on the, on the walk home uh, to Emmaus, 
that's what they thought was happening. And they even are kind of sassy toward Jesus, where they, they, he says, you know, why are you so glum? And then they say, you must be the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't have any idea what's going on, which is ironic in itself, of course. Um, you know, what, you live under a rock? I mean, what's the matter with you? I mean, that's how they're talking, right? They're very despondent about that. But, um, point five, gradually the darkness yields, and in the light of Christ, so now you should be, begin to think about things. The icon needs to show some semblance of light. Light is an extraordinarily important thing. Um, the darkness yields, and in the light of Christ, with his exposition of the word, remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus reads the prophets, and he explains the prophets to them. So with word, and then with sacrament, he takes bread, and he gives thanks, and he breaks, and he delivers, and in the sacrament they see that it's Jesus there. So, in the light of Christ, and with his exposition of the, of the word, and then also of uh, his gift of the sacrament, actually, you know, you and I misread. And this was the thing we did even way back with the transfiguration icon. You just can't tell in real time what your life is worth. I mean, you just can't tell in real time whether you're getting anything at all done, especially in the church. I mean, um, pastors go a whole career sometimes and never see anything good happen. And congregations can do the same thing. Um, the point of that is, and that, that's with your own life. If you've raised kids, you know, you put stuff into them, put stuff into them, you put stuff into them, and then you say to yourself, uh, where did that go, Right? <laughs> I mean, you just sometimes you just wonder, and then you know, we wake up one morning and suddenly they're 25 and have a job, and there's actually like somebody who likes them and might want to marry them, and you're scratching your head and thinking about them, and they have kids, and you know, they they live somewhere else, and they seem to go to bed at night, wake up in the morning, and they're all still alive, and somebody's doing the wash and cooking, and you're like, how did that? I thought they would, I thought they would shrivel up and blow away, you know. Um, Sometimes you just can't see in real time what it is that's happening in our own lives. And that's why it's so terribly important. It's so, this is why discipline is so terribly important. This is why Jesus says, follow me. This is why faith is to agree. Or the Bible study we did with the women on Friday. Faith means works. Jesus in John 14. If you believe in me, you'll do the works that I do. So sometimes, the, we've talked about Mother Teresa, you know, and having 50 years of darkness. Faith just means you're going to do whatever it is that Jesus asks you to do. And you're going to trust in divine love um, that says, no matter what the rest of the world does, I'm going to do this. You know, all you parents have you know, given your kid the, if all your friends jump, jumped off a bridge speech. But that's actually the same speech that Jesus kind of gives to all of you. You know, he gives it, that's, that's the speech he's given on the road to Emmaus. Just because everybody else thinks that evil is one. You all think that evil is one too? Really? That's what you think after all this time? You know, after all I've said to you? And so um, gradually, you know, what also the icon has to show is that life triumphs. Now, you get that with the proximity of the, of the icon to the altar. I mean, the altar is all about life. Again, it's a symbol of death. The altar is where you kill things, you sacrifice things. And yet the sacrifice is resurrected. Jesus, the sacrifice for your sins, is resurrected. Pastor Nelson was genius this morning. You know, that was great stuff to rethink, you know, what John 3.16 means for you. So the bottom line is, and this always needs to be reflected, is the sacrifice is terribly important. The sacrifice of Jesus, it straightens things out. It makes wrongs right. 
However, it's not always apparent to the eye that that, in fact, is the case. And when you can't see it, when you can't believe it, when you can't feel it, when you can't think it, you return to the church and everything in the church has to help you recall who you are and put you back on the road to Emmaus, right? And give you some instruction of word and sacrament. And so a congregation is meant to do that. Your friends are meant to do that. Architecture is meant to do that. Artwork is meant to do that. And that's why if you sort of do a bare bones, I mean, we did the best we could with the money we had, but if you do even less, if you just kind of do a bare bones sanctuary, there's no comfort there. There's no different than being in your living room. It's sacred space. It's a different place. It's meant to do something to you. You know, it's why people continue to go to cathedrals, you know, after nobody has believed in God for 200 years in Europe. Because they take your, their, your breath away and you at least, were, you know that there was somebody somewhere who believed. And that gives you the hope to believe again as well. And that's what Jesus is saying on Emmaus. So, life triumphs over destruction and evil. And suddenly then, point six, your life matters. And the great challenge always is whether or not your life means anything. Um, does your life matter or does your life not matter? You know, do we just, we're born, we get the best that we can of everybody else and we die? That's one way to go through life. Another way to go through life is to believe that your life matters, and matters is measured by the image of Jesus. You know your life matters if you embody Christ. That's how you know. And you begin to embody Christ by going to the sacrament and then letting Jesus' words ring in your ear as you leave from the altar and go out to be light and leaven in the world. That's what it means to have a life that matters. The problem is... If you have to figure it all out in advance before you believe it, this is always the problem with kids between, you know, about 16 and 26. They always think that they're going to think it all the way through and figure it out and whether they're going to make a good choice, you know. I still have, you know, every once in a while, every couple of months, somebody who wants to join the church will come in with a checklist, page after page. Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you have this? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you have this? And now, I'm sorry, but I start to giggle in the middle of the list. Um, Because the thing is, is I I just have this overwhelming thing. I just want to say, who do you think you are? And what do you think that we do here? You thought I was Peapod. You thought I was, you were going to type a bunch of stuff in and then we were going to deliver it. You've confused me with somebody else. No, this is what we do here. And we're going to do it whether... There's nobody left or there's a thousand people. What we do is deliver word and sacrifice. We deliver Christ crucified. That's what we do here. That's all we do here. Everything else, if you want to gather stuff up for young moms at People's Resource Center, by all means do that. By the way, congratulations on that. I heard it was a big hit. And you, you know, packed a car full of stuff and Ann Williams was very grateful. That's the next thing. That's living the life of Christ. But our deal, we can't live life for you. I can't say your prayers for you. You know, I can't love your wife for you. I can't, I, can't, I can't raise your kids for you. I can't do anything for you except deliver the sacrament to you. And then you go home and it works itself out in your own life. That's what we do. Put the checklist away. This is what we do. We, we help you embody Christ by touching you with Christ. That's what we do. Now, if you want to do something on a checklist, God bless you, you know. Get, gather your friends and do what you want and, you know, we will, you know, push you on your way. It's the best when somebody, you know, and I don't know if it was 
Mary Lou or I don't even know who, if it was Amy Hounstein, I don't even know who did, who did that. But, you know, suddenly you wake up and you've got this thing going on and they're gathering up good gifts for, you know, young moms or, who don't have anything. That's genius. But that's not, that's not my job, you remember. I church you, you church the world. The church churches you, you church the world. That's how things are meant to, to it's, not a, it's not a checklist deal. And so you don't have to figure it out in advance. We're not, I'm not trying to, pers- you'll notice, I mean, you'll notice the entire time I've been here, I'm not trying to talk you into anything. I'm not trying to give you 12 arguments for why you should believe the Bible would tr- is true or seven arguments, you know, for, for um, you know, believing in the sacrament. I'm not. That's not what we do. We deliver you the touch of Christ. Christ touches you, and then you figure out how to live that touch out in the world. Um, the church has been programmatic for 50 years. It was a wrong turn. Um, people don't join the church for programs. They join the church for relationships, primarily the relationship with Christ and then the relationship with each other. So my job and your job, and this is kind of the th- place where St. John needs to go in the next five or ten years is, you know, my job is to church your, your job is to church the world. My job is to have a relationship with you and anybody you bring. Your job is to bring people into relationship with Christ. Not with a checklist where they say, well, if you, you know, if I can get both, you know, a wash, a vacuum, and a shine for that price, I'm in. <laughs> That's not us. You know, we're the guys who, when people say, what have you got? We say, we've got Jesus. That's what we've got. See, it's a very different way of thinking about the church. The church has thought program, it was the last gasp of modernism to think programmatically. We got a lot of programs, so therefore you should join our church. You can go to the YMCA for programs. Which, there's nothing wrong with programs. It's just not what we do. What we do is give you Jesus, and then what you do is give Jesus into the world. We church you, you church the world. But you come back to get refilled every week with the touch of Jesus. And all of that has to be reflected in the icon, because that's central to what we're doing. Okay? And Jesus made it central too. John 14, faith means works. You'll do the works that I do. I know that this will probably get on the internet now, and I'll be in desperate trouble with somebody somewhere. But, you know, as I say this, of course, I'm presuming the fact that what's done on the cross is sufficient for all your sins, forgives you, delivers the Holy Spirit, and pushes you into the next, um, into the Christian life. But you've got to argue with Jesus if you don't like this. John 14, you'll do the works that I do if you believe. And greater works than these. That's how Jesus talks. Meaning, the greater works are baptism and Eucharist. So all that has to be told. And I can't prove that to you. I can just tell you you have to live this way. If you live this way, you'll understand. It's not that you understand and then you believe, although sometimes that can happen. It's much more often that you believe and then you understand. You just can't see your life in real time. You just can't. But you can be obedient. And I, and I never have understood why obedience is a bad word. Obedi- even today, you know, I've run you the commandments for the last 10 weeks. And... Was it eight today? I can't remember. Was it eight? So you're going to get nine and ten, but two weeks, read the close to the commandments. It's a genius thing. Where basically, Luther says, this is what God does. He comes down to you and he says, I'm telling you all about myself. You can take it, and it'll be a great blessing for you and your family. You can turn your back on it, and it'll be a curse for you. Your choice. But I'm giving you life. This is life. This is the promised land. Um... You know, you understand by doing it. So no matter what happens in your life, this is the bottom line, no matter what happens in your life, let yourself be embraced by divine love. No matter what happens in your life, 
utter obedience to Christ. No matter what happens in your life, go to the Eucharist. No matter what happens in your life, see as Jesus sees, do as Jesus does. Agree with Jesus. No matter what happens, in your, that's the Christian life. And at the end, someday, when you're pushed into heaven, you know, we did this Friday too, your good works go into heaven with you. It's in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, and it's also in Revelation. All your good works go to heaven with you. Your bad works get burned away, purged away. 1 Corinthians says it gets burned up like straw. But everything that is gold and silver and jewels gets purified, and heaven is just filled with these perfect good works. And part of your goal is to take a lot of good works with you to heaven. It makes heaven a brighter place because it saves you? No, because that's what you're meant for. But you can't always see it in advance. You can't actually see how being obedient or being kind to somebody who hates you or doing the right thing when everybody else is doing the wrong thing, you just can't see how that works sometimes. But that's what it is to be a Christian. And then you let the chips fall where they fall. And all of that is happening on the road to Emmaus. Everybody else is saying, well, evil is one. And Jesus says, I, you know, I just, I can't. wait till tomorrow, you know. So that all has to be there. All right, so suddenly six-year lives have meaning, and then with meaning, it's journeying and searching and being giving to and maturing and serving, um, and that's the life of a disciple when Jesus says, follow me, okay? Now, the problem is we have to get from here to there, and we're already in Lent 4, and things are fairly difficult. Um, if you look around at Psalm 22, we should probably just read it because it's good to read it. And um, you know, I, I gave so many texts here. I was thinking this morning, we'll you know we'll be here till September if we read them all. But uh, the reality is, I mean, this Psalm 22, just even parts of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that's just a normal way that people talk. I have talked to a hundred of you who have talked that way. God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? Why doesn't this work? I thought it would be better. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? I'm asking for help. Why don't you help me? It's sort of a normal human, you know, thing. God, I cry to you by day, but you don't answer. I come by night, but I get no rest. So for all of you who were up in the middle of the night last night staring at the ceiling, here's your psalm, right? Yet you are holy, and this always happens, right? So you get to complain a little bit, so that you talk about yourself. Mm, I'm really cranky. And then you talk about um, God, but you're holy, and you're enthroned above, and our fathers trusted in you. See, they couldn't see the end of their life, but they just kept going. Hey, there's a promised land somewhere, so I've got a deal for you. I'll tell you what we'll do. You rebel against the Egyptians, the strongest force in the world, and I'll lead you out through the middle of a big, big sea. And when we get on the other side, I'll let bread come down from heaven, and someday we'll get to a promised land. Really? Right? No wonder they said halfway through, oh, if we could just go back and eat cucumbers and have a good deal back in Egypt. Back to Egypt, it's so much better there. Well, you know, when they were beating you to death, you didn't think that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's right. There's wild animals and bad spirits and no water and snakes. snakes. <sighs> Hate snakes. <laughs> right. Snakes. Yeah, snakes. Yeah, that's right. Snakes. And you recognize this as, um, you know, we'll say this, you know, I'm a worm, no man. I'm scorned by men. Everybody mocks me. They make mouths at me. This is, I mean, this all gets fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. 
He committed his cause to the Lord, let him deliver him. I mean, this is an exact quote. He said he was God's man, so tell God to come down and rescue him. There's just nothing like, you know, trying to do the right thing and then being mocked for it and being utterly helpless. And that's what Jesus suffers on the cross more deeply than we ever did. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him, right? But then, um, you know, it always ends up, and, and um, 25, from thee comes praise in the great congregation. Go back to church. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. Make your tithe. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, the Eucharist. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord, the benediction. May your hearts live forever. You've been churched. Go church the world, right? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, the last day. And all the families of the nation shall worship before him, the great separation, sheep and goats. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Heaven forever and ever, amen. So, um, you know, all of that is here, and Jesus lives that out on the cross, and somehow we have to um, portray that. So I've got this, um, this anguish cry, and then God goes silent. You know, you've all had this. You want something, and it just doesn't come along. You suffer righteously, and you just keep suffering. You know, you can't quite figure out what the Lord is up to. So um, an anguish cry, a silent God, ridicule, torture, and then rescue which is always the way it is. You can't see the rescue coming. Here's the thing. You're all putting your chips on something. I mean, you're all believing in something. I mean, you're either believing in your own way, you're either making your own way, or you're believing, you know, the guy next door, your dentist, or somebody you work with. I mean, you're either believing them or you're believing the Lord. Pay your money and take your choice, but you believe in somebody. And at the end of the day, the payoff comes. And, you know, the great temptation, the great temptation is to be satisfied now rather than later. That's the great temptation. And Psalm 22, you know, addresses that. The only way you can understand this is if you can understand that once you're baptized, the Lord stands by you. And come what may, you're in God's hands. And that's the story we're going through in Lent. This is the Son of God, and the Son of God will be utterly betrayed and crucified and died. It's the greatest injustice that ever happened. And it'll appear as if all is lost, and then Easter comes, and there's hope again. So um, the early Christian church understood itself to be celebrating this rescue. Every Sunday is a resurrection. I told you at the beginning, if you count the, if you count the, the days, you know, it's actually supposed to be the 40 days of Lent. It's the 46 days of Lent. Why? Because you don't count Sundays. You never count Sundays. Every Sunday is a resurrection. Every Sunday is an Easter. So if you start on Ash Wednesday and you count all the way to Easter, it's 46 days because you have six Sundays. Every Sunday is an Easter. And you can only, you know, you can only suffer so much on a Sunday because at some point you're going to get the Eucharist and, um, you know, at some point things are all going to be okay. So... Um, in the New Testament, and now I'm at point nine, what I want you to do when you look at the icon is try to think through the last words of Jesus on the cross because they should all be bundled up there. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So here you see, you know, the great, the great thing for us is when somebody hurts us, you know, what we want is revenge. And one of the things, you know, we've all struggled through 
you know, individually as a congregation is, is anger, you know. And yeah, there is a righteous anger, but it very quickly goes to vengeance. And as the Lord says, vengeance is mine, you know. So we see in Jesus the embodiment of his own teaching. So he tells everybody, turn the other cheek, do good to those who hate you, pray for your enemies. And it comes to the cross, which is as bad as it can get. It comes to the cross, and Jesus actually lives what he taught, which is the ultimate mark of being a full human being. You know, that is what we mean by being authentic. That's what we mean by being non-hypocritical. That's by what we mean by being true. What we mean is you do what you say. There's very few people like that in life. Treasure the people around you who you find who you can count on because they do what they say. Jesus is the ultimate one. So at the point where they're putting nails through his hands, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You're really stupid. You don't know what you're doing. Which then makes the project of if you understand it, then you'll believe it, completely ludicrous. Because you can't understand it in advance. You don't have the capacity. I don't have the capacity. As human beings, we can't see what comes next. So forgive us, you know, we are confused and we don't know what we're doing. And part of the thing the icon is meant to do is always to remind you of that. If you're angry, you know, go sit in front of the icon for a little while. Yes, please. You're back now. Yes. Tony to get better for his cancer. Right. Good. And give us, so you don't feel like they go unanswered. Yes, good. You feel like, eh, we just don't rethink it. Good. So let me see if I can, I'll try to sum what you said by um, giving an analogy, which is, in the way the churches were understood to provide a checklist of programs, and if you found enough programs, then you'd be happy, the kind of prayer equivalent of that is, you give God a list of things to do, Right? which is how you're, if you're I'm, I'm kind of going broadly, but you're saying, so basically your point is there was a change in prayer life from giving God a list of things to do, which is figuring it out in advance. So, and I, I'll tell you, this was a very interesting thing when I came to Wheaton. I had a, one of the first great arguments I had here was whether the Lord's, Supper, or the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Prayer was sufficient for your prayer life. There are a ton of people who argue and no, and it is in the air in Wheaton. But you have to give God, you have to, faith means figuring out what God should do and telling God to do it, and then following up with God to make sure he gets it done. As if, and if you didn't do that, you weren't being faithful because somehow you weren't being attentive. A much more faithful prayer is the one that you describe, which is, I've got a friend who's sick. Sickness causes all kinds of trouble for him, for his family, for us. What we want is for him to get better. We know you want that too. You're the great physician. But we have no idea whether in the big scheme of things that's best or maybe a better way to say it, even if he doesn't get better in the big scheme of things, we know that you'll weave it back together in a way that it's a gift and a blessing to us, which is extraordinarily difficult to say, especially if you've been through some personal troubles in your own life. To actually say to God, I mean, I'll say to somebody, you know, and, and you'll say it back to me because this is not easy, but to tell people a death in a family, you know, the loss of a child, um, somebody who is a great sin is done against them, if you pat him on the head and just say to him, hey, the Lord's going to work that all out. I think I've told you about, I, you know, I think I told you. I told you about my brother's funeral, right? I told you this. A pastor came out. I told you this. Somewhere I've told you this. I came, a pastor at my brother's funeral. Very well-meaning. You know, my brother died in a plane crash when he was 25. Great guy. Claire's godfather, my best friend. I'm standing at the coffin, 
um, at the wake, and, I, and a very well-meaning pastor, I mean, good guy, comes up to me and says, hey, don't worry about this too much. This will make you a better pastor later. It will make you more empathetic toward other people when they suffer. Which is, in fact, true in some sense. <laughs> but, I mean, it wasn't the most helpful thing that could have been said to me at that particular point in my life, right? I mean, it's just not the most, you know, so the true thing is always not the best thing. Eventually, they come together. But while we're waiting for, you know, those two things to come together, true and best, the only way, reason you can change your prayers that way is why. Why can you pray that way? Why can you not give God a list of things to do and expe- instead express what it is that you need? Why, why is that? Because you trust it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the trust in divine love. So the same person who baptized me, the same person who touched me at the Eucharist, that person will not betray me. Right? And you don't know that in advance. Especially, you, don't, you know when you don't know it most? You don't know it most when you're suffering horribly. In the midst of suffering, for somebody to pat you on the head and tell you it's all going to be okay, it doesn't take your suffering seriously, right? So you've got to take this seriously. This is extraordinarily painful. It's unjust and painful on every level. You know, there's nothing that's right about the crucifixion. Nothing. You know, in him there was no guile. You know, he was a holy man. He kept, he kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. There's nothing just about the crucifixion. It's the worst possible event in human history. And then it's also the best possible event. Right? And so we, you can only pray that way when you've been engulfed in divine love. You can only say, you know, and, and part of it is, is some things, frankly, don't go away. There are some things that some people do to you or there's some things that happen to you in your life um, there are things that happen that don't go away. It is not true that time heals by itself. It may callous up a bit. It may make you wiser. But time of itself does not heal. Some things just never go away. The point is that things can get better. And that actually with exercise, and by that you know, faith is like a muscle. When exercised, it grows stronger. With exercise even the most horrible things can come back around to be a blessing, if not to you, then at least to other people. Right? And this happens. But you could never figure that all out for God in advance. You just never could do it. Right. Every prayer gets answered, but it's Bernard of Clairvaux. I'm telling you, there's nothing truer than this. When you pray, God will give you what you ask, or he will give you something better. You can only say that if you're enwrapped in divine love. If you say, I want the answer by the 14th. <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll do it his own way. I mean, there's just a pride in that. There's an arrogance of, I will. So it's this double thing. You, you know, you, you love people. You ask for things. You want things. You see what's clear. And we clearly know sometimes when people do evil, we ask for evil to stop, Right? We ask for life to take hold. Those are all utterly legitimate and proper, and you should be done. It's how you love other people, right? But you don't tell the Lord what to do. Yes, Marianne? Yeah. Yeah, we do an instant relief. And so our favorite new theologian, Stephen Colbert, uh, you remember the margin comment from him like two, two months ago when he talked about how his father and his two brothers died in a plane crash? He said, the great gift of my mother was to teach me that God's answer to pain is not always no pain, right? 
So there may be another answer. So you're in this great pain and you're suffering. God's answer to pain isn't always no pain. It sometimes is something else very different. I just... Absolutely. Yeah, because you're, it might not be for your purpose. Why? Because you're wrapped up in the community. So it might help everybody else at your table and not help you, and you have to get good with that. Because this wasn't particularly helpful for Jesus. Right? He didn't actually need this. I mean, you needed it, right? This is what it means to be conformed to the image. One of the things I've observed, the happy things that I've observed at St. John over the past couple of years is um, people's growing resistance to reacting, which is very good. A reactive personality is not helpful in the Christian life because a reactive personality presumes that you can see the future and so you know exactly what should, what should happen, right? But oftentimes, this is why so often quiet, you know, being silent. Job sits down and he's quiet for days on end. You know, sometimes just stopping and observing. And this can be for your own pain or the pain you observe in other people, the sins that you have or the sins you observe in other people. Sometimes it's just best to be quiet and wait and see how it, you know, if somebody's bleeding to death, okay, react. But often evil takes a very different form. It's kind of boring and persistent and sometimes shocking, but it doesn't need, you know, if somebody's got their finger in the, you know, in the light socket, go ahead and move them away. But otherwise, you know, sometimes... Let's just see how things will play out, because reaction often is just fuel on the fire. Okay? Yes, Mr. Lee. Yes. Right. Right. If your problem is Luther's problem, Luther's problem always was, how do I know I'm going to hell? I'm not going to hell. It's basically his trouble. And the answer is, holy by God's grace. Now, if you read the margin comments from this morning, there's good old Thomas Merton, 20th century Catholic mystic. You know, what does he say? I mean, there's a genius margin comment from a Catholic monk who basically says, it's all grace and not my works. And um, part of the reason we have Lent is to remind us of that, right? So if our problem, I would just say that for the, you know, in some sense, that's always our problem, but it's not our most, for this particular group, I, I, you know, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I think there's, right or wrong, none of you think you're going to hell, okay? Well, that was supposed to be funny. Didn't work, okay. Um, no, here's the thing. Uh, you know, going to hell is not the thing that you're all most worried about, with, with good reason. I mean, your scriptures, you're saying your prayers, you're going to the Eucharist, you're coming to the liturgy. So let's talk about the next thing, which is how we, are, how we, how we follow Jesus into the world. Every, every talk that Jesus gave wasn't John 3.16. That was one of the talks he gave, but he's going to wander down the road and heal a leper and then the epileptic kid sinning a lot and then the woman caught, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of life once you get that out of the way. So, we build, it's the, so we've often said this to you, which is justification is the first step, not the last step. And when he justifies you, he gives you a spirit and his spirit gives you the steam to work in the world. Now, we're way ahead of that. So partly what I want you to do is, you know, you sit in front of the icon, you don't just think, Jesus died for me. You do think that, but that's not the only thing. But when you think, Jesus died for me, and I'm really, really angry, what you look up and see is this, Jesus is dying, and guess what? He's not really, really angry. And in some sense, that shapes you. Does that make sense? So it's the whole package. 
we got to go because, ah, Mueller, he didn't get to me. I love that. <laughs> I don't even know where he is. He's disappeared. Okay, we still love him. Oh, Meltem? Am I supposed to say something about Meltem's visit on April 22nd? Do I need to say anything, Martha? See Martha if you want to help with Meltem. It's the 22nd. Uh, we'll have the last service. We'll have food here. Then we're going to go back into the sanctuary with no food and look at the icon and listen to Meltem talk. So April 22nd, mark your calendar. We're, that's a solid date now. If you want to help out, good. Talk to Martha. Here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Keep going. Another couple of weeks. Keep going.